Hi everyone, Robert here. A programming note before we launch into the latest episode of 42 to Doomsday. At the beginning of the podcast, myself and my two guests, Richard and David, have a discussion about the leaking of the animation footage of Power of the Daleks. We had this discussion a few days before the BBC announced that Power of the Daleks would be released as an animated feature in time for the 50th anniversary of Patrick Troughton's first appearance in Doctor Who. Now, I've decided to keep that in the podcast for two reasons. One, it's an interesting discussion, and while it is now in the past, uh, I think it's a worthwhile thing to keep in. And two, frankly, it's a plain bugger to have to edit it out, so I'm keeping it in. Okay, so strap yourselves in, here's the theme music. Once again, we're at Dave's place, and uh, of course, Rich is with us. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about other appearances of uh, Doctor Who leads in in, uh, in other TV and movie. Before we do that, uh, Dave, thank you for hosting. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. And, and I, I should probably get a plug in now that for my new gig co-hosting the Doctor Who show podcast. Oh yes, we. Um, I heard that uh, you did very well. Oh, thank you very much. How that was, was how was uh, doing all that? A very different experience to doing this. Okay. Mostly because it's over Skype rather than face-to-face, in, in, face face, which was very different. But um, that was a good conversation. I'm very pleased to have been asked to do that role. But I still I still have a lot of love for 42 to Doomsday. Yes. I'm very happy to be this here. This is where your loyalties lie. We, we, we expect your uh, continual obedience and loyalty to us. <laughs> you never forget your first time. No, no. no folks, you never do. Um, Richard, how are you going? All the better for being here. Really? Yeah, of course. Oh, that's nice. It's, uh, I haven't, we haven't, well, we haven't caught up since the last time. Oh, I don't think we have, actually. Yeah, yeah. Don't be a stranger, all right, next time. Okay. <laughs> um, now, before we get on to the main topic, we're going to be talking about two things that are currently top of mind for most fans who care. Uh, the first one is... Uh, <laughs> Which clearly includes us. <laughs> well, it clearly includes us. About a week or two ago, uh, some, um, animated, yeah, some animation of Power of the Daleks uh, leaked onto the internet. We don't know who leaked it or why they leaked it, but we do know it, it was out there. Uh, and then it was immediately taken down. Dave, you've seen it. What did you think? Well, I think first of all, it's worthwhile saying that the actual animation itself was extremely good quality, and I'd argue probably better than anything we've seen on the DVD releases. So that's a good thing in itself, but also I think a telling thing, because it points to it probably not being an amateur creation. And the fact that nobody's come out and said, hey, I created this, I'm glad you love it, give me a job also points to it not being an amateur creation, which I think is very, very interesting. Richard, what did you think when you saw it? In terms uh, of the quality of the display? Uh, look, I was impressed with the quality. Um, again, I think it was really well done. My initial thought was, and I think that's been scotched since, was that um, there was, back when Planet 55 were doing the 10th Planet animations, there was a showreel had out that had a small shot of it of a rather worried looking scientist type gentleman with lead printed on his uh, on his lapel yeah. um, that it was something to do with that but I, I think that's largely been scotch so yeah that, that was my first thought as well and I think it has been knocked down in fact I think somebody's found the of those photos and compared yep. it to the clip and they are completely yeah completely that different was in color as well wasn't it uh, no that was no? in black and white okay. the thing it was uh, there was uh, like they had their showreel which just had all mm. these other stuff they'd done and there was a couple of clips from 10th planet in there the sidemen walking in the snow and whatever and then there was a couple of clips that were like oh it's power of the daleks but yeah 
do we think that the fact that the BBC appears, or BBC Worldwide appears to have been very vigilant in taking down uh, instances where it's been posted on the internet, on Twitter, on Facebook, is indicative of anything? It, it's got to be something, because unlike organisations like, say, Marvel or Paramount, who are notorious for scouring the internet and doing that, the BBC really aren't. And let's face it, there's a lot of Doctor Who stuff out there, mm. you know, amateur videos and amateur um, compilations That, that they and stuff. do nothing about. Yeah, so the fact that they're making an effort to do this again would be indicative of it being... There's a, something going yeah, on. Yeah, it's a commissioned, well, presumably a commissioned work, presumably something that they are trying to keep under wraps for an official announcement, although I don't know why they keep bothering. Is there anything the BBC's done in the last 15 years that hasn't leaked months in advance? I mean, well, they're notorious. They're like a you know, sieve, aren't they? Whether it's, whether it's the show coming back, casting of Doctors, announcements of missing episodes, I don't think there's anything that hasn't leaked mm. from the BBC in the last 15 years, down to entire scripts. And episodes. And episodes. Yes, and indeed, episodes. Yes, so, Mr. Carmaggio, you're out there. So, I don't know why they bother if they are, but maybe they're trying to get better, who knows. I mean, we all know that uh, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of Chapman's first appearance is rapidly approaching. It appears to me, at least, that this is going to be timed for that. Yeah, so my, my, my second thought after realising it probably wasn't the old showreel thing was that it could well be just something small like, and now a treat for Doctor Who fans, before we show you the start of the new season, here's a five-minute tribute to Patrick Troughton, who came into the role 50 years ago, and guess what, we've animated some some stuff. The, the thing is, though, the clips the, the clips in that reel, I wouldn't have necessarily thought would have been the ones, all of them would have been the ones you'd have chosen, perhaps to, to showcase, hey, look, it's, hey, look, kids, it's Patrick Troughton. I mean, there's the stuff with the Daleks doing Daleks Conqueror and Destroy and the stuff, but I don't know. But I if you've gone for stuff maybe from the first episode where he's just regenerated well, well, and we, you... We don't know if what well, we've seen is all there is, but what we saw, if you were going for fan service, um, that, that cliffhanger with the Daleks conquering and destroying would be a meal, sure. It, it, it is, but I, I don't know, because then you feel into the fact that everything in that clip just simply replicates existing footage. So, so it's either been extremely well edited before it was put out, um, and look, that's possible that that's what happened, or there's a lot more to it than that. Clearly. So, so let's let's take the lid off a bit and ask the obvious question: All the previous episodes that have been animated have been to complete a partially missing story. Do we have any belief that maybe there is a partially complete? Copy of Power well, of the Daleks somewhere. I think somewhere. that's certainly something doing the rounds because the the clips, I, I think the stuff in that clip are, are and again it, as I said it replicates extant clips, but it's all from parts three to five. I think the material in that footage, and and I I think which would suggest you know if you do want to leap onto the hey look they've got some of Power, which would tend to point you have maybe episodes one two and six. Which is the key episodes to have, I suppose. Well, really. I guess it is. And, and I know, look, there is... I don't know, I'm a big fan of episode four. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I know, I know there is uh, things circulating at the moment that that's certainly the case. But... And, and let's not forget, and, and again, listeners will know from some of my previous appearances, I'm usually pretty cut and dry when it comes to the Omni Room and I look for evidence. Oh, you're a believer, come on. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to be. We're all a wanna believe. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely remembering the interview that you and Mark did with Dave Hoskin um, a while ago, and I'd encourage any listeners who haven't heard that episode to go back and find it because it's 
a very interesting interview in which Dave Hoskin is so casual in the way that he affirms that the power of the the, the, the rumored power of the Dalek screening happened. There, there was no like conspiratorialness about this. No one listening to him going, "This is a guy who believes." Now, whether he's right or not, I don't know. But when you combine the power of the Dalek screening rumor, what Dave Hoskin has said on your program, and now this, it starts to feel like maybe, just maybe, just maybe, mm. there's something in this, and you'd like to hope. Yes. Well, I suppose time will tell. Fortunately, time will tell. It, it always, always does. does. But well, hope is very dangerous. <laughs> well, <laughs> the lack of it can, can be, be fatal. <laughs> These two are often a little full of right? No, that's all right. Uh, well, well, I'm sure... That, that's our Blake Seven reference over with for the episode. <laughs> yes, that's fine. I'm sure we'll find out in due course, and it's not too far away. You would imagine if it's going to be something that's commercially released and it's timed for November or even Christmas... Well, we'll know soon. We'll know about a month out, really, when you think about it, more or less. One final point, though, is I alluded to the BBC being terrible at leaks. In, in, so, just in, in the past... When something has leaked early, I think with, with the exception of Capaldi's casting where they had to hold off because they were doing a live cast, they've usually been quick, pretty quick to come out a couple of days later and go, yeah, okay, I know it's leaked, well, here's the official rushed announcement. That that hasn't happened yet. It, it's possible, though, because when, I mean, they announced... Uh, when they announced the Web of Fear, an enemy of the world, I mean, that was... Well, I mean, there was a lot circulating about that in the days leading up to it, but that was only announced, what, three days, I think, before it came out on... Oh, if, if that. No, I thought it was um, available the same night. Yeah, Because it was, it was it, the day after... Because it was, it was a Wednesday or a Thursday, I think, they announced it. It was available here, it came here, here Friday lunchtime. I, yes. I, and yes, I do actually... I wasn't one of them, but I do actually know a couple of fans who took the day off work so they could <laughs> immediately go and download them. I, I did take my laptop into the office so I could down, <laughs> download them ready to watch the moment we finished. <laughs> yes. Well, well, we'll we'll no doubt find out in due course and perhaps there'll be some further leaks in the weeks, the days and weeks ahead. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. The other thing that is top of mind for fans who care, uh, like us three, is um, the uh, much-anticipated, long-trialed uh, chat panel between uh, Dick Fiddy of the BFI and Philip Morris of Tia. Last Saturday, our time, uh, they both got together at the Starburst Film Festival and talked for about an hour uh, about, well, largely about Phil's work in the field. Uh, some of it uh, Phil had already talked about, uh, obviously learning the um, Nicholas Courtney uh, trick of re recycling old stories through the years. But um, I've heard it, I think Dave has heard it as well, and Richard's uh, heard a summary or read a summary. Dave, what did you think after listening to that? Yeah, so look, I... I, I probably should give them a plug in fairness. I listened to the Blue Box podcast um, coverage of it. My first thought listening to the stories of woe and degradation that, that Philip tells was that we just can't expect to see anything more. Like, this, this idea that there's some African warehouse where there's hundreds of wonderfully preserved videotapes or film canisters, it's just a fantasy. Like, you know, he's talking... I was just amazed at the, the as I said, the level of degradation of what he'd found. And so anything that is found is going to be incredibly lucky. And I, I, I was most interested in what he said from that point of view, just that, that real down-to-earth kind of puncturing the, the fantasy or the romance of what he was doing. So, yeah, that, that, that was actually my main takeaway from it. Um, the other point was that he 
mentions very casually the conversations he's been having with film collectors, private film collectors, and the way that those conversations need to be managed in ways that perhaps some amateur fan hunters haven't managed them well before. And he says in a way that I didn't think was abstract. I thought it was actually quite anecdotal. So that tends to say to me that maybe there's a couple of things that are coming out of some private collectors. Now, I wouldn't expect that to be a lot, but and, and maybe I'm drawing conclusions, you know, adding two and two and getting five. But that, that, that actually, in terms of are there more missing episodes, that private film collector stuff was the bit that stood out for me more than anything as a bit of a, not a red flag, but a bit of a um, highlighted point. Richard? Hmm. Much the same. I mean, look, he didn't really say a lot that, that you probably haven't heard in one form or another. It was interesting to note he did say that he'd found uh, that episode of, of the show, The Troubleshooters, um, which I haven't seen mentioned anywhere before. Um, plus he found, a, a, unfortunately, not missing, but he'd found an episode of Callum mm. uh, in Nigeria. But um, So that was interesting because it, it does sort of, if you wanted to leap on that as going, well, he's clearly found lots of other stuff. There's clearly some examples there that haven't been officially announced, but you're right. I mean, look, I, I don't think that, that you're going to find, that, you know, that the warehouse somewhere buried in deepest, darkest Africa that, that has all of season five in it. Um, because, well, you know, I mean, clearly, as he said, I mean, he's got to the point where he's now going out into the desert and digging up landfill. Yeah, and yeah, I, I heard that. I thought that, that's a wonderful story to tell. But am I really expecting to get a DVD quality copy of the Macro Terra that's been buried in the desert with a bunch of landfill? <laughs> so the short answer might be no. <laughs> that's right. No, I mean, look, clearly, it's probably much where we were. 12 months ago. I mean, look, he clearly is still talking to people. He's clearly still out there spreading the word. Um, as I said, and having conversations with people. What it has resulted in or what it will result in, I, I think is is I, open to anyone's interpretation. Yeah, I, I still hold firm in my belief that at the time that Web and Enemy were returned, there was nothing else to return. Possibly something's yeah. been found in the interim, but I... I think that that would be new. But Rob, Rob, you've been following this whole thing far more closely than we do. Where do you stand? What did you take out of it? I all right. A couple of points. I sometimes wonder at the utility of these of doing these sort of things in terms of mm. Phil's reputation amongst people who are following it. I mean, what? what what is the point of getting up on stage and throwing a few tidbits? All right. So yes, I found an episode of Callum that still exists. I found an episode of the Troubleshooters. The obvious follow up question to that is: Have you handed it back? And if you have, who have you handed it back to? Mm. But there was, I'm not quite sure what Dick Fitty was doing there. It felt to me, in hindsight, that he was Phil Morris's prop, much like the Mexican president was Donald Trump's prop a couple of days ago. <laughs> it, it, it was clearly the Phil Morris show, and he will say what he wants to say. And it, I mean, he's, I'm not going to use the word cunning. He's very smart in how he relays information, but in terms of what benefit this is to Phil, I'm not entirely sure. Look, I, I, I guess Phil was just doing a favour and doing a panel that he'd been asked to do. I think given that the way that Phil has chosen to operate, we're not going to get a Jeremy Paxman-style interview with Phil, you know, pushing the points and mm. haranguing for answers, and nor can we expect to. Um, well, frankly, I didn't think Phil was any more or less than what I expected him to be at this no. point. Mm. I mean, the thing is, though, and, and it's it's probably, in some ways, you've probably got the wrong end of the stick, because expecting Phil Morris, I think, to get up and say, 
here's a catalogue list of every single thing I found in the last 10 years, isn't going to happen. Because if, if he finds material, he presumably would hand it back. And then it really... I mean, it's probably not his place to really start making these big announcements. I wouldn't have thought because yeah, agree. if you find BBC material and you have a relationship with the BBC, okay, if I, when I'm going about my daily depredations, if I find your material, I, you know, we have an understanding that I'll hand it back. Well, you can't really hand it back and then go, oh, guess what? I just go back to the BBC. I mean, the BBC would want to make that announcement themselves if they're going to. So, I mean, you find with something maybe like this episode of the Troubleshooters, maybe it's something the BBC just don't really care about so Um, yeah on on that point i certainly took away from this interview more than i had from previous ones a better understanding of how phil morris and tia work and and the full holistic nature of their activities and when you realize just what a professional organization that is you're you're absolutely right richard we're not going to get you know like an amateur hey guess what everyone this is just what i found Mm. it's going to be professional relationship with all of the contracts involved all the confidentiality clauses involved and so yeah i I don't know what people expect from Phil. No, I mean, I, I think, as I said, if you want to harangue people for, for information, I, I suspect he's the wrong end of the... Yeah. He's the wrong end of it. You, okay. you probably really need to be leaning on the BBC, and let's face it, they're not going to tell you. So it, It'll leak eventually. Though. Yes, well, that's well, right. It always does. I'll, I'll make three points. Um, he very casually and very confidently said he's all over Web3, and if you were to take, what he, if you take what he says at face value, it's, it appears that if he hasn't already uh, recovered it, He's in the process of doing so. Well, fine, at least knows where it is. Exactly. The other point I took away was his operations are quite extensive insofar as he's pumping uh, film and video material back to the UK and it's gone to a a facility that he's either purchased or or rents. And the thing that struck me was he doesn't know what is actually there. No one has had the time to go through what he's returned to the UK, whether it be, you know, simply cultural materials from the relevant home country or, uh, you know, UK material. And the other thing I took away was, is it, is it fair for fans at this point who have been, and granted there's probably about 40 or 50 people who are really deep into it, <laughs> is, I mean, clearly we can't stand up and, sh- and, and shout at them and say, we demand that you tell us now. But is it fair to, to, to ask or say, can you give us a time frame in which you can, you can lay out for us the full scope of your searches and discoveries? Or is it, as you say, really... I'm merely a conduit for someone else's material. It's down to them once I've handed it back. I think it just comes down to personality. If it was someone like me who's very timetable focused and works on deadlines, etc., I would work like that. Phil clearly doesn't work like that. But the other thing is, I suppose it's it's a never in some ways it's a never ending story. So, yeah. Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, where is the end goal? I mean, unless you've looked in every hidden cupboard been through every lock-up, been through every everything. I mean... I, I, I guess you can do it in the tape so Like, There will be some point when he says Africa is now finished. Um, there will be some point where Southeast Asia is now finished. Um, Australia, if it isn't already finished, mm. um, will be finished at some point. So you're right. You can't, you, can't, you can't rule out every private collector in every corner of the world, but you can say, we have now been through a holistic search of Africa. True, but then again, I suppose if you go back to my earlier point, in some ways, is it up to him to, to as I said, present a catalogue of this is what I've done, this is what I've found? I mean, look, I don't doubt once you start looking through countries and you're satisfied, okay, look, there's nothing more in Ethiopia, maybe you can then tell the story of, hey, this is my, 
you know, this is my travels through Ethiopia. But I think in terms of the material, and I mean, I guess if you go back to your point, Rob, about, look, there's stuff who probably simply doesn't know what some of it is or what the majority of it is, um, that story then is probably not going to come out for a very long time. Now, that goes to the scope of the operation itself back in the UK. I mean, how many people does he have? How many people does he employ? I mean, is he, is he, is he effectively a one-man band with, who brings in contractors occasionally? Is it Phil who's going to be donning the, the, uh, the, the chemical protection garb and opening up these vinegar syndrome um, um, films by himself when he gets back? I mean, it's impossible to say. It's no, impossible it to say. And maybe as we get more interviews from him, that's the sort of, they're the sort of questions that will be asked. So on to the main topic of the episode today, uh, which uh, will be another one of our signature top five episodes, as you hear me turning a piece of paper over. Um, we're going to be talking about, uh, I, I believe, uh, top five performances outside Doctor Who by uh, Doctor Who lead actors. And uh, I believe, Dave, that they'll be, be throwing in a Joker, uh, a non-canon Doctor. Is that right? Uh, yes, that is, that is absolutely right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll have our, our top five um, actors who played the Doctor in another role, mm-hmm. um, which I think will be, I hope, will be quite an interesting conversation for listeners and give them some stuff to go out and check out and see these actors in other things. We all discovered some very good performances by, in air quotes, non-canon Doctors that we thought needed to be on the list but shouldn't be in the official top five so we'll we'll mention them as well and we'll um part way through we'll do our non-canon yeah yeah yeah, yeah i suppose i should make the point is this another list colin bacon may not find himself on uh, well unless someone has seen time gentlemen please in which he makes a cameo uh, i think colin will miss it well, i mean i'm assuming we can we can maybe talk for a minute at the end about uh, the, the ones who didn't make the cut oh yeah, yeah. Too, absolutely yeah I'll, I'll be very interested to see if there are actors that make multiple top five lists and those who don't and yeah I think there's going to be some important points to make about both those who do and don't at the end oh now I should say at the start we haven't seen each other's lists so no there yeah. could be some double up in yes. fact, there could be some actual not just actors but roles double up yes there could be some role double ups and I will say um, and what I should have said at the beginning of the episode clearly Mark is not here uh, <laughs> bastard he's on, <laughs> he's on assignment somewhere but he's kindly shot me an email um, he's actually sent me a list of 12 <laughs> And I've taken the liberty of just chopping that down to top five for Mark, and we'll just go there. I don't think he's got a non-canon performance, but we'll see. So, um, because, Dave, you're hosting, you can begin. So, number five. I'll I'll say as well as the start, I I chose my top five completely without any... in a completely straight-back manner. I haven't tried to balance it or anything. So I was actually quite pleased that it did come out as quite a good balance across the decades in the, um, the series. Number five, I've gone for Christopher Eccleston. Now, I came very close to having him um, in a number of things. We've actually gone with Christopher Eccleston in the 2010 telemovie Lennon Make It. Ah, yes. Now, this is a little biopic where he plays John Lennon. And Christopher Eccleston is, I think, one of the best actors to have played the role of the Doctor, but perhaps the most intense actor to have played the role of the Doctor. Yes. And that absolutely comes across in this little biopic. He... John Lennon is in the room with you, and it's it's the full, uh, not the nasty John Lennon, but the full John Lennon with all the genius and all the flaws and, and, and yeah. the hang-ups and the anger. And when John Lennon is berating the other Beatles, I was I was scared. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I felt that. And this is a very powerful performance from Christopher Eccleston. So, 
Eccleston in Leonard Naked is my number yeah, five. Yeah, I, I remember watching that. I must admit that was quite an intense performance. It didn't it didn't make my list, but um, yes, I do remember watching that. Have you? No, don't know that no, one. No, no, I, I know the, the the movie, but no. Okay, okay, all right. Um, my first one. Look, I haven't actually ranked mine, so I'm just going to do mine in in reverse Doctor order. Um, so I've started with David Tennant. Um, and my choice for David Tennant is the voice of the Fugitoid from the Teenage Mutant. No, I can't. <laughs> I, I can say I have seen him in that because I have an eight-year-old son. So, um, and we did watch the recent uh, cartoon series of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and it was a case of, hey, that dude, that sounds like David. T- it is David Tennant. Um, no, I actually chose him, and something I've watched fairly recently. I chose him uh, for Jessica Jones, um, which I think we've all watched. No, I haven't seen that one. Uh, I've watched the first two episodes. Oh, so you haven't actually got to the bit with David Tennant. I, 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 I know the premise. I know the premise. I know the premise. And uh, it's nice of him to escape typecasting, isn't it? So. It is, actually. Well, look, no, I chose him for that because it's something I've watched recently. And he was actually really good because the first couple of episodes of Jessica Jones meandered a little bit, um, but it really found its teeth when he appears. And... and, and he actually, yes, as I said, you've watched the two episodes he's not actually in, <laughs> Rob. So um, that was my choice. And, and for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. TMNT. Very nice. Um, so for my um, uh, fifth position role, I've gone, and this is informed mainly by childhood nostalgia, uh, I've gone with John Pertwee as, as Wurzel Gummidge. Um, I remember being a youngster so, so many years ago. And it's clearly a performance that that, that Pertwee, and I think I believe he said it that it's the one that he enjoyed the most. It is the thing of, he apparently I think he was most proud of. I think in terms of what he'd done. And um, I mean, it's you know, it's clearly Pertwee under the makeup, but he sort of subsumes himself into the role. He's very much the muddle-headed uh, scarecrow that uh, delighted a, you know another generation of of children for a number of years. So um, whilst I have not seen it in um, probably thirty years. It's certainly a performance uh, completely at variance with his, you know, his role as the mm. Doctor, and um, in a career that sort of spanned, you know, a number of decades and was heavily into radio. Uh, other than Doctor Who, this is the one. This is the TV performance and appearance that really sticks out for me. So, uh, John Pertwee as Wurzel Gummidge at number five. Not, Fair not, not, not in the goodies. <laughs> Oh, again, that's such a long time ago, and I vaguely remember. Because I, I very did I just on Pertwee, I very nearly did pick Pertwee because again, I've been having a bit of a goodies rewatch mm. um, recently, um, and and you'll see why soon. <laughs> but um, there, there was I did get to the Wales episode, and I thought he is really, really excellent in this. That the episode itself actually, once you get out of the John Pertwee stuff, um, kind of drags a bit, particularly in the second half. But, oh yes. Um, but he was really good. But anyway, I've got some thoughts on Perry, but I think I'll save them for our, for for our summary. Yes. Yep. Ooh, nice. Uh, now, plus, plus, he was the host of Who Done It for several years. His TV career never really. Oh, he was probably aging out at that point, wasn't he? Well, after that would have been. Well, that was. I think he did that not all that long after he finished on Who, because he was a panelist. Um, he was a panelist on Who Done It, uh, and, and sadly, I'm old enough to remember when Who Done It was being screened mm. live, but. Um, they, they, the first season was hosted by Edward Woodward, um, with Pertwee, yes, the great man, uh, with Pertwee as a panelist, um, and then I think at the end of the first season, or end of the second season, Woodward moved on. Pertwee didn't cut his lunch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I 
think we'll just let that one slide. Oh, yeah, <laughs> slide. Um, yeah and, and he took over as the host for the remaining season. So. Okay. so what's Mark's number five? Well, Mark's number five, uh, looking at this list, I think I'm getting to the stage where I may need glasses. Uh, his number five is also Wurzel Gamage. Uh, clearly the co-hosts uh, in lockstep with this. Mark writes, I do have very fond memories watching the series back in Homeland, but I have no idea. I had no idea that the great man was actually Doctor Who at one point. However, I did used to get freaked out a bit when he used to swap his heads. So that was a, a thing that uh, Wurzel used to do. So yes, it was. Mark's uh, top five there is, uh, again, Wurzel Gummidge. There, there you go. go. Snap. Ooh. Our first snap. Number four, though. Number four. This is perhaps the most obscure one on my list, but... One I hope a few people will will go and look at. So number four, I've gone Peter Davison. And in a 1993 TV movie called Harnessing Peacocks, which was an adaption of a Mary Wesley novel. So it's about an hour and a half, two hour telly movie. The premise of it is that there's a, there's a young lady played by Serena Scott Thomas, who, after finishing school, goes on a trip to Venice in a festival, um, has a one night stand with a lovely man, from whom she separated but becomes pregnant her family kicks her out and this is all about her being um, by a series of coincidences reunited with that person 13 years later when she has a 13 year old son um, played by Tom Beasley it's got a cast John Mills Nicholas de Provost uh, Jeremy Child Brenda Bruce amazing cast very very clever uh, writing it's a very good little TV movie but Peter Davison I think this sort of reflects all the best of his performances. He just is so gentle in the role, so compassionate in the role, um, so genuine in the role, and I think it's a really good summation of the best of Peter Davison. So uh, Peter Davison in Harnessing Peacocks, which is now available on DVD, because I have, did get a copy to check this out, and um, I think you should check that one out. So that's my number four. Oh, Richard. Mm, here we go. Do we actually before we go on to Richard, yeah. and I'm sure yeah. Davison will be tri- you know touched on by others. Is he underrated as an actor? I think that in the '80s he wasn't underrated, but yeah, he probably has become so in his later career. Yeah. And, and and I guess another reason why I picked Harness and Peacocks was this is really that point at which he really turns from that 1980s pop soap actor. Um, or sitcom actor. Who's in just about everything. Yeah, who's, yeah. Who, who's in everything but nothing brilliant to actually picking some really good dramatic roles. Oh, that... I remember enjoying Sink or Swim when it was on. But uh, uh, well, I, I recently watched <laughs> a bit of Holding the Fort and that, oh, that, no, that, that doesn't that's, stand no, up. No, that's, that's, that's really bad. Um, but no, this, this, is, this is really that, that point where Davidson is turning from a, a young leading sitcom actor to a real dramatic actor. And yeah, I really like it. Okay. All right. Sorry, Richard, you were going to no, no, no. your fourth. No. Well, my fourth, uh, again, because I'm going in reverse order, I, uh, I had Christopher Eccleston uh, as, as my fourth counting back, um, and I chose him. Well, there's, there's any number of things <laughs> that you could choose him for. Um, I actually chose him for Shallow Grave, Yes, oh, I, I, oh, I came close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and see, this is the thing. Because <laughs> I have memories. I've watched it once since, but I have memories. And, and you two, chap, I think we're both there. We're both I do there. remember the night, and this is years before he was even, Doctor Who was even mentioned as coming back. I remember the night we sat there and watched it at a mutual friend's house. At, and, at about midnight. Yeah, and, and we're just sort of scared almost, I think, by <laughs> By, by the the movie. For anyone who doesn't know, and I won't spoil it, it's um it's ninety five, I think, and it's Danny, it's Danny Boyle. I think it's actually Danny Boyle's first movie because it's pre train spotting, mm-hmm. I think. 
Um, we'll yes. Yeah, it is. I'm sure it's pre-trained spotting because it's Ewan McGregor when he was um, he's what the other male lead before I think anyone really knew who he was because his breakout role I guess was probably train spotting. But yeah, and it's uh, it starts out as three sort of yuppies who share a house and get a new flatmate, and then it just moves away from that very very quickly. <laughs> yes. And Eccleston, I guess. He has, in some ways, I guess, cornered the market, perhaps, in intense, slightly uh, disturbed or troubled individuals. Would, would you call it a horror or a psychological thriller? or uh, How would you classify it? Psychological, psychological thriller, thriller yeah. I, I think. And he actually does become increasingly paranoid um, and, and lose, increasingly losing touch with reality, probably, as, as the uh, movie goes on. But, yeah, I do remember... And, again, the fact that we all laughed when... <laughs> When I mentioned it, I do remember us watching it and actually just sort of sitting there just being like, hold me. (laughs) It was very disturbing to watch it. This is, now that you've reminded me, because I'm going on a bit of a a movie DVD buying thing and I'm getting a lot of movies from the 60s and 70s, but this is a movie that I think I need to buy so that my wife and I can sit down. And it, watch it. It, it, it is. This is definitely one that listeners should go and check out. There's there's a couple of scenes in there where they have to dispose of some bodies, and by drawing How the casual straw, you say that. <laughs> <laughs> look, I watched Conspiracy the other day, so look, you know. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, no, they have to dispose, and, and he draws the short straw to to actually dispose of the or mutilate the body so that they can't um, they can't be recognised and. He, as I said, he becomes increasingly paranoid. And there's a scene later in the movie where he's taken to living up in the roof, and he drills holes down into the rest of the house because he's paranoid that the other two housemates are um, going to gang up on him, or conspiring against him. But uh, no, very disturbed. One for all the family. <laughs> Your number four, Rob. My number four. My number four is also Christopher Eccleston. As we've mentioned, he is an extremely intense ang- uh, actor, intense and angry actor. Oh, I suspect he'd be a very intense, intense and angry, angry person, person yes. I think. <laughs> and uh, there's, I mean, three roles immediately sp- sprung to mind for me. I was going to go with uh, 28 Days Later. Oh, yes, yes. Um, but I put that aside because, again, it's this sort of trademark intensity. And I was looking at The Second Coming where he plays Christ Returned. Yes. Um I don't, I'm still troubled by that product, whole production, so I'll put that aside. I'm going to go with his performance as the detective in Cracker. Cracker. Yeah. Now, Cracker, for all you youngsters out there, is is a 90s uh, detective drama with... Um, what's his name? Robbie Coltrane. Robbie Coltrane is, uh, as Fitz, and uh, he's, a, he's a psychologist with a, a gambling problem, and he falls in with the police and becomes a, a sort of a quasi-assistant to them. And in the early episodes, oh. in the early episodes, Eccleston is one of the uh, is the lead detective on the unit that uh, that uh, Coltrane helps out with. And I chose this performance because it does have his sort of trademark intensity, but there's there's more of a rounded character in the performance. Mm. He's a family man as such, and he's dedicated to his job. He's dedicated to his family. And the episode, oh, well, it's twenty years ago, so I can't spoil it. The episode where he leaves. Is it's really it, it's actually heartbreaking to see him on the footpath saying this is the the, the last words of a dying man effectively, and um, I think uh, from the news reports it sort of gripped Britain and shocked Britain and um, that particular episode or set of episodes uh, it's a fantastic story, but for mine that performance by Eccleston particularly in that story is one that warrants people 
uh, going back and looking at, and thus my fourth pick. Hard to argue with any of that. The second coming... Look, I'm a, I'm a left Catholic, so the whole premise of it is very disturbing. <laughs> and the idea that Christ would commit suicide and that we'd all be happy later afterwards, that we'd live happy atheistic lives afterwards. The first 80% of that, that of the second coming mm. is brilliant, clever, witty. Mm. In, dare I say, typical RTD fashion, mm. the last 20% is just bobbins. Mm. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's only one RTD thing that I've ever watched a piece that I've thought he's really nailed that ending and that was a series he recently did called Cucumber yes and that was the only one where I thought he actually had the end properly before he wrote the script mm. otherwise I don't think he really cares about the end he just it's the journey that's right so Mark's number four Mark's number four is Matt Smith in Party Animals oh good call Mark says like a great many uh, of us who screamed at our TVs when Matt was announced he says who the F was that I quickly sought out this show and to my surprise really enjoyed it and him. Then he asks Dave, is this a fair and accurate portrayal of the lives of political operatives? Uh, I would say of all the television dramas about political operatives, Party Animals is by far the one that nails it the best. Um, some of it is actually quite scarily accurate because it, it accurately combines the highs of the job with the drudgery and the awfulness of the job that sort of come in waves and... Um, yeah, I'd actually seen Party Animals before Matt Smith was cast, so when everyone else was going, what the hell are they thinking? I've said, hang on. Who's this kid? Yeah, I, I was able to say, hang on, I've seen him, and I know exactly why they cast Matt Smith. Okay. So that's, that's a very good pick from on Mark's part, I think. Very good. Yeah, sending it via email. So we now move on to our third place. Yes. David? Uh, my third place. I'm going with the first mention we've had of this person, actually. I don't think it'll be the last. We'll see. I'm going with Paul McGann. And I've picked him in The Hanging Gale. Which, ah, yes. Which was a yes, four with his brothers. Four, yes. with, with his brothers. So it's got Joe, Mark and Stephen all in it. It's a four-part uh, miniseries from 1995. And it's set during the potato famine in Ireland. Very, very good piece of drama. Um, very hard to track down these days. Uh, the villain is somebody who played almost every British TV villain in the mid-90s. Michael Kitchen, no relation. But he, he he's, he's brilliant. But... This is this is a, a series that captures the utter depression and lack of hope and just horror of, of Ireland at this point. And all the McGann brothers, but Paul particularly, give these wonderful, desperate, sad performances that really, really make you feel for the, the people and the era. Um, it's very well written. And look, Paul McGann's done a lot of great stuff. Some is better than others. You know, he was good in Hornblower, but not great. But I think Paul McGann and, and all his brothers in The Hanging Gale, really good little performances from a, a good historical drama. Very good. Ricardo. Well, mine's actually, my third one, because we're counting back, is also Paul McGann. <laughs> um, and I, um, well, I had a couple, but uh, I actually chose him for the series in which he probably announced himself, which is the thing called Give Us a Break. Oh my goodness! Um, which uh, is well, oh. it, it's um, it's very much. I, I think his first real starring role. I think it's actually only about the third or fourth thing he, he ever really been in. Yeah, I think. He looks about eighteen. In um, he is. He's twenty. I think he's only about twenty-two. Um, where he plays. Have either of you two? I've, I've I've checked out a few on YouTube. I, I remember my dad watching it in the eighties, and I've I seen it because I remember it being on in the eighties. Yeah, but I've seen a couple on YouTube since. No, no, sorry, no. no. 
it's it's very much a sort of a, a it's set in the same universe as Minder. Um, it's very much the, the world of, of slags, toe rags, and rhyming slang. He he's a young uh, well, he, he basically he comes down from Liverpool to live with his sister, and his sister is is sort of hooked up with this. He's a chancer basically. It's called well, Mickey Soames, who's really a sort of a wannabe Arthur Daly. And it transpires he owes people money, but um, it, it transpires uh, Mo, uh, who's played by Paul again, is an absolute gun snooker player. So they spend the rest of the series uh, going around just increasingly trying to turn uh, snooker snooker tournaments into nice little earners. And in plot terms, finding even more interesting ways in which they can have a whole plot turn on a game of snooker. Yes, very, <laughs> <laughs> very much so, which is probably why it didn't go to a second series. Um, sadly, it is quite a funny. I've, I've rewatched. Um, I've rewatched it in the last uh, probably couple of months. Um, you should probably mention who the other lead is. Yes, well, the other lead is Robert Lindsay. Mm. Um, it's also got um, David Dacre in it. Um, yes, who's, who's yes. Iron Gron. And um, yes, the captain from uh, and the captain from that's right, Captain Rig Griggs. That's right, Captain Rig. That's right. Um, so and Robert Lindsay. Well, I mean, he's gone on to much bigger and better things. I, I think at the time he was probably best known for um, a show called Citizen Smith. Yeah. Um, which was a sort of a late 70s, um, I guess you'd call it sort of com- uh, comedy series. He runs the, the, the one of the little socialist groups in, in Britain that was trying desperately to hope that, you know, there was a socialist future. With the Jeremy Corbyn of uh, his time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, um, I, I, I hesitate to say very down-market wannabe socialist. <laughs> um, it, but, it's not exactly a very British coup. No. Um, but anyway, no, look, give us a break. Um, I think it's been released on DVD. It is, it's a really fun little series. Um, as I said, I, I can see why it didn't go to a second uh, to a second season, but because um, you're right, there, there are sort of only so many times you can, um, yeah. Um, I know how we'll solve this. I've got a guy who plays snooker. Yeah, well, we need money, so I'll get you in on another tournament. So yeah, um, you know, you sort of get to the point where you really have to turn pro. But anyway, that's my number three. All right. So my number three is uh, young Patrick Troughton. Young Patrick Troughton. Oh, no, no, no. Well, he's forever young in our hearts, I think. So, <laughs> um, I was going to go with uh, a Hammer movie, Scars of Dracula, where I believe he plays a sort of um, an assistant, Clove, I think his name is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but I've gone instead for something which I think is a far better movie, uh, which the is Omen. The Omen. Yeah. Is before. <laughs> now, admittedly, I have not, other than Doctor Who, I don't believe I've seen Patrick Trouton in anything else other than those two movies. So, um I haven't seen Box of Delights. No. I haven't, okay. I haven't seen any of his appearances in TV like, you know, Danger in, in, Man. Inspector Morse. No, nothing like that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I've gone with that. Um, the movie's a better movie, clearly, and... Well, he's only in it right at the start, but... It's a tr- it's an intense performance. Yeah, he's a character actor. You, you would have seen the... the um, which one's... What's the Ray Harryhausen one he's in? Uh, Jason and the Argonauts? Yeah, it is Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, no, it's Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, maybe, but I probably wouldn't know who it was. But, yeah, Troughton, um, trademark uh, character actor performance there uh, you know breaks into the office and basically says you know we've got to stop this and we've got to do this and then of course he's ending where he's speared by the uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the steeple on the on the top of the church very very memorable memorable performance for me and uh, a memorable performance for the, the fact that you know, the movie's great the movie's really good actually mm. uh, typical of those sort of uh, mid-70s horror movies um, The Exorcist The Omen even Rosemary's Baby which is a few years older than that yeah. um it has that sort of 
trademark 70s grit and grime and sort of lived in thing mm. so yeah Troughton as the priest in the, uh, in the well, I'm actually unless he's in somebody's top two I'm actually surprised it's the first time he's come up we shall see ah, <laughs> now, knowing knowing wink <laughs> <laughs> can't say that on the podcast so um, <laughs> for the benefit of the tape <laughs> benefit of the tape yes now um, Mark says uh, here's our third one is Paul McGann in a short lived sh- series called Fish now, this is about a character named Jonathan Fish Vizhnevsky who was an employment lawyer who specialises in industrial tribunals I'm intrigued already no his wife uh, see, Mark says his wife has left him and gone abroad leaving him to look after their young son I stumbled across it when it was on the ABC uh, playing at weekday lunchtimes in the early 2000s didn't have a job back then Mark uh, and it only lasted one series, which was a shame. I've also seen him in an episode of Ripper Street and a great series called Collision. So clearly... Um, McGann is popular. McGann is the man. Well, I think actually after give us a break, what I was going to say, that the thing he did, and that really was what put him on the map, was he then did a series called The Monocle Mutineer. Yes. Yes. Um, which I think was, the, as I said, was the thing that really put him on the map. Yes. Um, and that's still you know, a little a bit of a touchy subject, I think. That's um, been released on DVD. Uh, it has. I know at the time, I mean, I, again, I remember the Monocle Mutineer being on here. Um, I know when it was screened in Britain, there was a lot of uh, unhappiness mm. um, that it had been made and screened because I think, and there's still, uh, the, the events, the, the uprising in the British camp, I, I think next year, I think, isn't it? I think they're due for... The 100th anniversary? Yeah, I think that the, paper, the official papers will finally be released. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I think they're still... Or will they? <laughs> yeah, they're they're like, burnt that's that's like, well, I thought you were going to say they'd just be like they see with these just huge chunks of black across them. You just can't. Here's, here's a black sheet. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean it's it's a quite a t- it was a, a touchy subject. I mean the character McGann played um, is a real character, a real person, or was a real person, and he did have impersonating British officers as part of his mo. Um, but I think it's sort of been proven now. I don't think he was actually there at the. Uh, Percy Topless. I don't think he was actually there at the events in question. But let's not get facts get in the way. No, of story. but it was. A, I must admit, it was quite a good. Um, it was quite a good series, and and it certainly was uh, quite a nasty stain, I think, on the British uh, army for a time, because mm. uh, it was quite. Uh, there was an uprising in a, in a training camp in France, and it was quite brutally put down. Um, so anyway, nice yeah. happy show. <laughs> <laughs> he goes for the happy ones, doesn't he? Yeah. Hey girl. David. Well, I mean, we could have done lesbian vampire killers, but... Um, that? Yeah. Now, actually, are they lesbian vampires who kill people, or are they people who kill lesbian <laughs> vampires? I suppose it could be both, actually, I, couldn't I, we? I, I don't know. I'll safe to say I haven't seen that one. now move on to our non-canon doctors Dave so uh, go ahead so let me preface this by saying uh, had this actor or in this role been one of our 12 official doctors it would have been number one on my list um, without any question now if I talk about my top four or five favorite shows yes there's Doctor Who there's Blake Seven there's Brideshead Revisited but I Claudius from 1976 is up there so for my non-canon pick I've picked John Hurt as Caligula in I, Claudius. <laughs> now, I, Claudius, for those who haven't seen this, this is a brilliant, brilliant drama. You've got Derek Jacobi as Claudius, George Baker as Tiberius, Brian Blessed playing Augustus at a time when, believe it or not, most people considered him probably the best dramatic actor in England at the time. He then did Flash Gordon, and it was all shouty from there. 
But John Hurt played Caligula, and this is <laughs> this is just the most subtle but twisted and horrible performance by an actor. It is utterly, utterly terrifying. Uh, yet you still the, the the sympathy for for him as he's assassinated and quickly realizes that he isn't actually immortal, <laughs> and it dawns on him <laughs> as he's bleeding out on the floor. Um, but what, watching him just quietly sentence people to death. The, the, the scene where he brings his newly appointed a senatorial rank horse, um, Iggy Tardis, into the, into the... Well, the bit where he comes back when he's just been on successful campaign and picked up all the seashells. And picked up all the seashells and... Yeah. And thwarted old Neptune. Yeah, there's, there's some wonderful, wonderful stuff in there. Of course, most notorious is the ending of the um, middle episode that deals with Caligula where he's just... Uh, murdered his sister, and yes. I won't go into the details of what else goes on in that yes, scene. Because it was cut. It was cut, um, and even even the cut version that's out on the DVD now is sickening. It is absolutely sickening. But Hurt, Hurt gives a wonderful, wonderful performance as Caligula in a very fine series. And look, for Doctor Who fans, well, for fans of science fiction in general, Patrick Stewart is also in that part of the show, and he is amazing as Sejanus. But you've also got, you know, Fiona Walker, David Robb, Kevin Stoney, who else we've got? Sheila Ruskin, Christopher Biggins plays Nero, um, 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 Stratford Johns as Piso in one episode. Really great performances. James Breeze in a bit of it. Uh, amazing, amazing performances, amazing TV series. As I said, John Hurt, he would be my number one on the list if he was one of our 12 official doctors, but... I, I, I kind of lobbied to include a non-canon option so that I could have him mm. mentioned on this podcast. So. Is, um, was that regarded as a landmark TV event even before it went out in the UK? Uh, it wasn't before it went out, but it became one very, very quickly. Mm. And because it took so long to produce, the first episodes were going out before they wrapped the, the 13th or the 12th, whatever it was. And it was a very big success by the time they, they got to the film, the end of it already. It just goes to show that no matter how obscure the material, if you have... Great writing mm. and great actors. Mm. You will bring the audiences in. Yeah, I mean, Sean Phillips as Olivia, you know, just amazing cast. Mm. Very, very good cast. But doesn't the BBC do something landmarky anymore? Do they? Well, it was one of their first really big... I mean, their first really big landmark, like big, big budget drama, I think, was the First Light Saga, I think, in the late 60s. And that was black and white, obviously, and that was big enough that, that even in the early 70s they repeated it, mm. um, even though they'd, they'd gone completely to colour. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to talk a bit about a couple of their other ones later on in my list, so... Yeah. Um, Maybe the land, media landscape is now too fragmented for something that captures... This the, the, this stuff, I think, is now very much the realm of HBO, mm. where it's, mm. it's found that... I mean, HBO does that sort of thing very, very well no, now. It's found, it's found that sort of niche. I, I suppose yeah. the problem is that the need to be populist or popular... I guess, or bring in the ratings um, now, perhaps mitigates against it. Well, well, let's face it, when people ask me if I watch Game of Thrones, my argument has been I've seen a couple of episodes and I, Claudius, did the same thing much, mm. much better. Mm. Um, so Game of Thrones is probably how you would have to dress something like probably. that up now to make it a mass, yeah. mass appeal. I mean, audiences have moved on a bit too. I mean, you would be old enough, Rob, to remember in the late 70s and early 80s when the first times they screened big budget movies on TV. I mean, mm. you remember when, you know, the first night Star Wars came on television. Yeah. The first night when they showed Ben-Hur on television. And I think that was even across two nights, I think, Ben-Hur. Um, they were big I, events, I think. yeah. They, they, they were big events. They were big Sunday night movies, weren't they? I think yeah. so. Yeah, they were big. 
Um, Even when I was younger, I remember stuff like The Terminator being the big Sunday yeah. movie, yeah. And then uh, first time on television. And of course, everyone just went nuts, but no. All right. Uh, Richard, well, your yes, non-canon yes, choice. Well, since, since the one I probably would have gone for has been taken away from me, I um, I went for David Batten. No. <laughs> I went for David Batten. No. He is in an episode of The Bill I watched recently. He is. Um, I think he only has a couple of lines, but he is actually in an episode of The Bill uh, I watched in the last little bit. And look, he has been in, in other things. No, I went for... Um, again, I've been re-watching a bit of Callum, so I went for Richard Herndl. Um, and not for Blake Seven. <laughs> um, he's in. Um, he's in uh, one of the the early colour episodes of Callum um, as a chap who uh, has been returned in a prisoner exchange from behind the Iron Curtain, um, and and is sets about. He, he believes he was recruited by British intelligence or or forced into working for British intelligence, and intends to publish a book naming names. And of course, our man Callum uh, <laughs> is uh, has has to stop this from happening. Um, and it's quite a it's quite a good episode. It, it turns out um, again, spoilers. He, he's actually been uh, it was the KGB who set him up initially, but um, and, and forced him into whatever. But um, yes, he was in uh, he's in that. Well, yes, he was he was of course in Blake Seven as Nebrox. Uh, <laughs> Nebrox, that's right, in a nappy. <laughs> um, and that well, Blake the Blake Seven, I think was very much I think one of his last uh, was actually one of his last or one of his later appearances and he got the five doctors because of that yes yeah, so and, and, and that was by pretty much the last thing he filmed yeah no Ian Levine said to John Nathan Turner if you're looking for a William Hartnell go watch this episode of Blake Seven yeah. one of the best things Ian Levine ever did <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that that was my choice I mean Herndl sort of been around uh, for a long time he did a lot of the um, a lot of the, the, the live produced uh, drama productions in the late 40s when TV came back um, he's, he's in a large number of those and I think he was uh, quite a again he seems to be primarily a TV actor but there you go that's my uh, intro, intro for a non-canon doctor my non-canon doctor is John Hurt it's for his performance as uh, well John Merrick uh, in The Elephant Man yeah uh, I, I, I did think about that one yes when I was a mere slip of a lad uh Obviously, the movie came out in 1980, but it only reached our shores in the small country town that we resided in in 1981 or 82, I believe. And my father and his brother, my uncle, went and saw it. Now, my father is fairly straight up and down with regards to his movie watching. So something like this... Uh, it was outside his area of uh, expertise as such and, that, <laughs> and I know that I re- distinctly remember when he came back and I sort of said to him well, what was that like dad he said you're never to watch that he basically warned me okay. off it so as, he, as so is always the case you do? <laughs> quite intrigued by it now I at that time we were running a motel and we had we just set up a video uh, a system throughout all the rooms so people could watch VHS movies in the evening pop from the office and it used to be me who would go up to the video store and choose the two movies for the evening so I either that or it was shown on television either way I did manage to see it and his performance unrecognisable between the Mm. underneath the makeup despite that the humanity of this man who has been shunned and ridiculed and used to make money for other people absolutely shines through and I obviously there's that famous scene where he's you know I'm, a, I'm not an animal, I'm a human being. Even now, that resonates with me. And at the time, I was torn up. I was completely torn up by that performance. Mm. I was in floods of tears. And I distinctly remember going to school. I must have, I must have been after I watched it, because that last 
bit of the movie where he's heard is doing the voiceover and it's moving through a starscape uh, that still is it yep. was in my mind and is in my mind now it's a great movie I mean apart from that it's a great movie it's got Anthony Hopkins mm. uh, as the doctor who finds him um, David Lynch in a rare straight movie I mean he's obviously a race uh, a race ahead from uh, later in the decade but the elephant man and Hurt's performance you know I'm almost afraid to watch it again because I know I'll be deeply upset by it mm. it's just a movie that reeks of humanity and uh, I really if you yep. have not seen it get out there and go, go the, the direction on that as well is amazing mm. I mean just the, the, the lead up the two minutes of lead up to that famous line as well ratchets up the the, the tension so amazingly mm. yep. it's a very very good movie yeah and I, I remember hunting there was a book that was released um, well I picked up in the 80s or the 90s about the, the, the true history of the, the elephant man. man yeah um, I was just the the, the, the sheer physical the, the way his body had betrayed him so so badly um, and just seeing actual photos of him it's just it's 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 tormenting in a way And but Hurt brings to life the man beneath the deformity it's just wonderful John John Hurt's clearly a, an amazing actor I think one of the not tragically that's far too strong a word but it's a shame now that I think a lot of what he's cast he's cast to just be John Hurt mm. and he sort of gives a John Hurt performance he's capable of so much more um, but look he still gets to Speaking cash a check, being the voice of the dragon in Merlin, or yeah. well, that's right. Or you know the the, the John Hurt like character in V for Vendetta, or mm. whatever the case. Good on him, but his best work is his, some of his earlier works. He had some yes. amazing roles. It's these great actors, you know, your McClellans, your Hurts, seem to have fallen into the genre trap. You know, they, they appear yeah. in your X Men, or they appear in, in 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 just these sort of genre movies where they they they're basically used for their reputation. Patrick, Patrick Stewart's another yeah. one. I mean, you look at Patrick Stewart's early work, particularly I mean, what you read of his uh, theatre work as well. Mm. And look, you don't begrudge him being Captain Picard, you don't begrudge him being Professor Xavier, but mm. I think that's probably denied us or robbed us of some but better Patrick Stewart then, then I suppose you get someone like Eggleston, who obviously does the one for the cash, um, goes and does Gone in 60 Seconds or G.I. Joe, mm. the movie or whatever. Well, that, then... that bloody um, Thor, was it Thor 2 he was in? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that, I suppose, frees him up to then go and do stuff he actually wants to do. Mm. Yes. Clearly, I think. Danny Radcliffe is a younger actor younger as well, is very clearly doing the, the one for the cash and then goes and does the really weird, fruity movie. Out that, there, that, one that he wants that to. That he wants to do, yeah. Mm. yeah. Now, Mark didn't actually have a non-canon actor. Uh, in his selection so um, we'll let's, just... let's pick Trevor Martin <laughs> let's pick Trevor Martin uh, Mark says he remembers being a lad of three going to the theatre no he doesn't <laughs> when, when it wasn't closed due to the IRA bombing <laughs> are we laughing about the IRA now oh. <laughs> alright so um, yeah non-canon well, he can have David Banks there you go he can have David Banks yeah that's alright uh, number two David uh, yes my number two I have gone with David Tennant and I've actually gone with him in an episode of The Bill. Mm. So it's an episode of The Bill from... Oh, yes, another one. Yes, it's an episode yes. of The Bill from 1995 called Deadline. Yes. Which, this was a period when The Bill was still doing half-hour episodes. This was a 50-minute special. In this episode, um, a girl, a young girl is abducted. Now, the police very quickly work out who's actually done the abduction, but... They don't know where the girl is, and eventually they realise that she's in an airtight refrigerator truck. So the episode is all about getting David Tennant's character to tell them where the girl is before she runs out of air. So it's a, it's a very, very tense little piece. But David Tennant gives a performance where, 
as the episode goes on, he goes from uh, completely, you know, innocent, I don't know what this is to do with me, to maybe he's slightly dodgy, to just the, the, the layers of the onion come off in his performance as he goes on, until at the end you realise he's an absolutely psychotic fruitcake. And it's absolutely chilling the way he does it, but the way he goes from the viewer thinking, well, God, don't, maybe maybe the twist is this guy's not the killer or not the abductor. He just seems like an innocent, poor little caretaker from the school through to this guy is a monster. It's a brilliant, brilliant performance. Now, Tenet at this stage, he'd just done taking over the asylum, which was when I, when I first saw him. So he's still very, very young, but for a layered performance, this is very hard to go by. So... David Tennant in the Bill episode Deadline for my number two. Yes, I, I forgot about that one until you mentioned it. Yeah, that was that was a uh... <laughs> yes, very very good performance. Yes, it was actually the really spike out episode. Um, all right, well for my number two, I've gone for I've gone for Tom Baker. Oh, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to get a Tom. You weren't sure if you were going to get a Tom. Um, and again, look, there's there's various things I could probably pick him for. I chose him for Little Britain. Um, as a narrator um, and the reason I chose him I was thinking about stuff that, that Tom had done and I remember I had a, a friend who was working you know, I was working for one of the uh, banks at the time and he'd been over in the London office um, and he came back and he was raving about this show called Little Britain I hadn't been on here yet um, he said oh no it comes on you must watch it you got to watch it you got to watch it it's really really funny and of course it came on and it opens with the narration and of course that's Tom Baker and I must admit, that immediately, well, that was an immediate hook. Um, and, of course, Little Britain itself was a great series. I, I think it got a little tired, perhaps, towards the end. But I, I, I'll confess I'm not a fan, but I get, no. I get why people I are. hate it. Do you? Do I you? I just thought I'd say that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not funny. I need Mark here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's that sort of show, because you're right, it, it, doesn't, Rob, it doesn't resonate for me at all. No, there's nothing but in it. Yeah. others absolutely swear by it, so... So he, well, anyway, in, in the face of this uh, <laughs> clear hatred, I'll, I'll soldier bravely on. Carry on. Um, yes, he was the voice. And I, I think it, it's probably almost the start, perhaps, of where we're talking about just getting an actor just to be themselves. Yeah. You sort of have Tom Baker just to be Tom Baker. Um, he'd probably been doing it for a little while before that. I mean, I, I think in Monarcha the Glen... Um, he again came on and just did his sort of slightly zany Tom Baker type performance. You, you could argue um, playing Puddle Glum in the Silver Chair yes. action. It was again yes. just, just give me Tom Baker. Yes, I, I mean, look, I guess you can also talk about. I mean, he, and I know a lot of it wound up on the floor. I mean, look, he did. He was the Elf King in Dunder Dungeons and Dragons movie. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, getting <laughs> on floor stuff there, Tom. Yeah, that was ah. Oh. That was, but he does sort of very much. I mean, he then, um, he then when I mean, there was Randall and Hopkirk deceased, where he plays Mister Wyvern, who's the, the the sort of the keeper of the other realm. But he sort of increasingly from then on in really just becomes we we just want Tom Baker. Mm. And look, I guess when you're Tom, and and you can just be because he is hilariously funny. Look, you ever watch him hosting anything? Um, he is a really hilariously funny man, and I am always so sad that no one ever managed to get him out here for a convention. Um, we did try. We did. But, uh, yeah, because I, I think he would have been a great con guest um, to have had here. So, what anyway. Thing, what sort of things has he hosted? That people can look um, up on YouTube, for instance. Oh, there's well, probably the big ones I got if I got news for you. Mm. was the one I was watching the other night. But, um, no, I was very sad. As I said, I was very sad they never got him out here for anything. 
And, and look, he did give a great interview. If you read the, the latest DWM or the latest Bar 1 DWM now, mm. um, that was a, quite a good interview. I mean, look, I think he's somebody who never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. Mm. But uh, no, amazing. And, and, and look, for me, he probably always was Doctor Who because he was the first one I saw. So I had to sneak him in there somewhere. Very good, very good. All right, so my number two. I've gone with Peter Capaldi. And they're clearly... I've got to say to them... Who? Local hero? Yeah, no. Uh, I've got to say to the listeners, I don't necessarily go out of my way to find performances by Doctor Who lead actors. It's just what what come what may, I'll, I'll just come across it. So I know Capaldi's had a long and varied career, but I'm going to go with the most obvious one, which is his role in the thick of it. Um, I like a good comedy. Um, I like swearing a lot. <laughs> I, like, I like intensity. Uh, the sort of intensity that if I did displayed at work, I would be marched out by security. Surely in context swearing, not, not just... Um... <laughs> oh, in context swearing is fine. No. <laughs> he is simply incandescent in the thick of it. He, um, he owns it. You wouldn't know that the, the, this lovable fellow who entrances young audience members of Doctor Who out in the world is capable of such a excoriating performance yep. and when he's got his, 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 the bit between his teeth there is no there's no stopping his rhetorical flushes, uh, flourishes I don't mind the swearing frankly I don't mind the metaphors and the illusions and all that sort of thing I just think it's 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 really funny it's really <laughs> enjoyable I have to say I'll, I'll, I'll say, tell you now Peter Capaldi isn't my number one so he didn't make my top five he is the one that I most regretted I couldn't squeeze into my top five and I'm sure if we'd had six he would have been that the thick of it is amazing, but what really I think defines his thick of it performance is the very last, his very last scene of the very last episode, where for a man who, as you say, has just been this tyrannical, swearing, angry figure, at that moment of defeat for him, I, I was a little choked up. So for him to take that character and make you just feel sympathy for him was an amazing performance in that particular episode as well, so yeah. A, a, a good call, and like I say, whether it was local hero or the thick of it, I think Peter Capaldi would have been my number six. Now, Mark goes with Peter Davison, uh, and he's, um, he's bounced around a bit here, but he's gone. A very peculiar practice was a great show, also starring David Troughton and Graham Soldied Crowden. Yes. Uh, quite a quirky show from what I remember, oh, but, the, but the follow-up in the early 90s, a very polished practice was crap. Uh, after a bit of a dry spell in the mid uh, to late 90s Davison bounced back with The Last Detective and At Home with the Braithwaites which uh, Mark thoroughly enjoyed uh, at the time and certainly enjoyed the characters he played and the storylines that they served up Um, so which one out of that was his pick? uh, very peculiar practice Okay, that was a good series I really liked a very peculiar practice I do remember watching that when it was on yeah Uh, I certainly missed that one The Last Detective I saw most of the episodes yeah Uh, played a a, a decent, unassuming fellow in a in a role that probably demands <laughs> to be assuming and not um, not sort of retiring. So yeah, yeah, no, a very polished practice was uh, yeah, that was pretty ordinary. Um, okay. Oh, he he was part he, he basically because in the later seasons of um, very peculiar practice, he picks up with uh, it's Joanna Kansker as the actress who, who sort of I think was the BBC's resident. Eastern European person, oh, okay. uh, a, a multi-purpose Eastern European actress, I think, for for a long time. 
Um, and they go back to Poland anyway, and of course there's no money and, and everything. And then she starts to he thinks she's picked up with an old flame again, but okay. yeah, it was it wasn't actually very good. Yeah, right. So there you go. There you go. But very peculiar practice was great. Now, if I had a drum kit, I'd do the drum roll. But instead, David, your number one. My number one, I have gone for Patrick Troughton. Mm. And I've gone for him in the role of the Duke of Norfolk in The Six Wives of Henry VIII, which was a 1970 TV miniseries. So we were talking before about the big budget uh, BBC dramas. The Six Wives of Henry VIII is one of the very early ones, and it looks it. Um, the opening title graphics are literally a freeze frame of a tapestry with the, the opening titles <laughs> stitched onto it. Um, the se- I, I, just, just to talk a bit about the, the show for a moment, the, the sequel, which was Elizabeth R. starring Glenda Jackson, is, I think, in many ways far superior to The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Is that um, Keith Michelle? Is yeah, so Keith... Keith Keith Mitchell or Michelle? Michelle. Michelle. Because he was, um, when they did, oh, maybe a bit young, but they did the Captain James Cook series. Uh, oh, I, I'm uh, aware of it. I didn't say it, yes. Very early 90s, he was Cook. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, so, yeah, look, no, that's a good point. Keith Keith Michelle is, plays the role of Henry VIII in what was an award-winning role that I have to say has dated quite a bit, um, particularly when you compare it to Glenda Jackson's award-winning role as Elizabeth I in, in the sequel, which stands the test of time very, very well. Keith Mitchell, Keith Michelle gives a very not over the top performance, but a very uh, un- yeah, a very ebullient, unusual performance as Henry VIII. And the show also suffers a bit from the fact they decide to make each ninety minute episode about one of the wives. So Catherine of Aragon gets ninety minutes to cover about twenty years. Uh, Anne of Cleves gets ninety minutes to carry cover two conversations. <laughs> <laughs> so so the show isn't very well balanced in that respect. But nevertheless. Patrick Troughton is in five of the six episodes. Uh, he plays a member of Henry's court who starts off as a sort of peripheral figure and then as others like Wolsey and, and the like fall aside, he rises and comes to power before uh, manipulating his niece, Catherine Howard, uh, into the into the role of queen. Now, that, that episode, he, he's very good in all of them and he, he gives a grounded performance that really grounds the series and, and, and contrasts to some of what's going around him and it's... It's a wonderful character performance, and obviously 1970 would have been straight after he'd just finished Who, so you can see him very deliberately getting back into those big dramatic roles. But if you just want to watch one episode of this, episode five, which is Catherine Howard, the way that he manipulates his niece to being the Queen of England, and then when things don't quite work out, is willing to throw her, Culpepper, anyone else under the axe to save himself, and just... It's a really good dramatic performance in a in a in a, uh, dra- in a drama that really set up the BBC for probably their golden age of, of, of historical dramas over the next ten years. So stuff like I Claudius, Elizabeth R, um, Edward the Seventh, Edward and Mrs Simpson, all of those big sort of seventies dramas really I think sort of come back from that. And mentioning Edward and Mrs Simpson, Patrick Trouton is of course in the last couple of episodes of that playing Clement Attlee with an amazing bald cap. <laughs> but that's, that's another example of... I mean, Trown's only in about three or four scenes in that, but he has to play against the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin. And so if you have Attlee as anybody other than a powerful performance, it will just get, get lost. Mm. So, look, Patrick Trown, I think... Oh, I think he had a, a fairly... 
I mean, we'll be all knowing for Doctor Who, but I mean, he had an amazing body of work. Yeah, look, I, I mean, some of his earliest performances are in Olivier's. I mean, he's in Olivier's Hamlet, and then a couple of years later, he's in Olivier's uh, Richard the Third. Absolutely. Look, I, I knew when I was assembling my top five that Tran had to be in there, and at the end, I couldn't go past him for number one. The baddies, or not? <laughs> Let's not talk about the baddies. Have you seen um, Wolf Hall, the adaptation of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall? I've, I've, I've seen. I've seen three or four episodes. What do you think? Uh, I want. I want to watch more. It's I want to watch very, more. Yeah. Very, what's the lead actor's name? Uh, Academy Award this year for something. Yes, I can't. I can't remember. I know. I know. Oh. I know. Tom Sangster's in it. Yeah. There's a few other recognisable names, but I can't remember the lead. That's really, really good. Affecting yeah. and and. and that's very good mm, okay. and that's that historical drama that I think I, 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 have, I have acquired the first series and watched a couple and they're, they're on my list of things to watch more of yeah. I think they're going to adapt the second one as well um, anyway sorry uh, Richard you're number number one well for number one I went actually I went for William Hartnell Ooh. and again look there's a, a body of things I could have chosen for I actually chose uh, a series called Life with Johnny um, which is a very rare example of something he did after he left Doctor Who. Um, it's a series. Mm. It, it's actually a but series. It still exists. It does sort of. Mm. Um, it's it's actually a series. Well, the thing is, it had actually been around for a couple of years, and everyone had clearly forgotten about it because it's a series that starred Cliff Richard, and he plays Cliff Richard's dad. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm just 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 let me compute that. Okay. Yep. yep well, carry on. My, my, my neurons are grinding. To <laughs> And I think we have, I think we actually have Gareth Roberts. I think to to um, to thank for the fact that that people suddenly realised, hey, that's got William Hartnell in it, because clearly the Cliff Richard fans and the Doctor Who fans are, are two discreet groups. Because <laughs> no, seriously, there've been clips yes. of this on YouTube for a long time, and I don't think anyone had actually twigged. And I don't think it was even on IMDb there for a while either. Okay. It is now, but um, no, he it, it's um, Life with Johnny was made for I think one region of ITV and I, I don't think it was ever screened anywhere else um, it's six episodes I think there's three of them left Hartnell's in two but one of the one of the two's missing um, it's it's very much Clifford it's sort of a young man living life in the swinging 60s but obviously because it's Cliff um, it's it's how a young man faces the moral dilemmas that might beset <laughs> people in the swinging 60s so he's um, the one in hundred who didn't uh, take up the uh... yeah <laughs> okay um, so and I, I suspect there's probably the festival of light or whatever may have had an involvement in it or, or at least Mary Whitehouse but um, so they're, they're sort of um, the stories are very much um, I mean I've watched two of the three that, that, that still exist I couldn't quite bring myself to watch the third but um, <laughs> um, there is, it, is it a um, struggle is it or look the novelty value for I'm not really a Cliff Richard fan so. The novelty for me was seeing William Hartnell, as I said, in a role after he was in Doctor Who. Yeah, it's it's very much it's a it's a, a vehicle for Cliff to, to obviously you know espouse some good Christian moral values and and, and obviously do some performances. Um, the one Hartnell's in is, is essentially that they do have a bit of a religious parable overtone to it, and the one Hartnell's in is, is basically the prodigal son. Um, anyway, and he goes in. Hartnell's only really in one scene, and he comes back for about a minute, I think, at the end. But um, he goes, uh, Cliff, uh, seduced, well, not seduced, well, not seduced, but uh, under the uh, guidance of his girlfriend, decides he wants to move from his regional centre down to swinging London. Um, so, of course, that's he goes the, and asks... Gamora. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, the flesh pits of London. So um, they, um, he goes and asks his father for, for money. 
to help him move. And of course, then he realises London clearly isn't what a young, upstanding boy should be doing. So he comes home. And what's uh, Hartnell like in that? Um, actually, really good. I mean, again, as I said, he's only in it for a few minutes, but um, he come across. He, I mean, you know, he's not sort of the the doddery fool we're all told he was. He was. Well, the clearly, you know, ill individual we were told he was post who. Mm. Um, I mean, he is in a few things. I mean, he did an episode of, of uh, I think it was either Zed Cars or No Hiding Place mm. after Doctor Who as well as a couple other things. But uh, no, he seems quite sharp and whatever in this. Mm. I mean, Hartnell again is somebody with a, an extensive body of work. Um, much, much of which we isn't easy to see, unfortunately. Uh, particularly his early stuff. No, yeah, all I those mean, movies aren't available. I suppose a lot of his early before. stuff isn't. Um, I've got a couple of his nineteen forties movies. You'd think there'd be something that the BFI would make available. Um, I don't doubt they've. I'm assuming they still exist. I don't know, but um, a lot of his sort of uh, what they used to call the the, the quota quickies. Yeah. Um, he did in the thirties. I I've never seen them mm. anywhere. I mean, there's one called. Um, uh, there's one called Will Any Gentleman which is one he did in the 50s where he was with John Pertwee mm. um, which I think is on TV yeah. <laughs> um, Pertwee's the star of it and um, Hartnell was really only in the latter scene where he plays a police inspector but there's that but um, no I mean he I mean I know he went on record several times you know he's a legitimate film and whatever actor I think mm. TV unlike say Troughton who, who moved to TV quite quickly um, Hartnell really seems to I think largely seen himself as a you know he was forced to do TV he was, he was a film actor um, who you know who was forced to move into something that was beneath him but that is that is an interesting aspect of Hartnell I mean he, I think he came up through theatre mm. but then he did make his mark such as it was in the movies mm. um, and then I suppose was it circumstance that sort of made him have to go into TV as such well I mean I think the film industry really started to die off I think once TV came along okay um, I, I think and plus I mean there was always the money thing because I mean even when he was doing films in the 30s because you had to have X amount of British content, they used to just knock out these, you know, shot in a shot in two day, mm-hmm. short movies to, to meet the quota. Okay. And then of course they'd just pair them with a with a big US Hollywood blockbuster, mm. um, and that. But that's how you get around your local content, as Gary Packer would find later on when uh, <laughs> when, it, when it came to negotiating sports rights. Okay. You have to. Well, that was the whole reason. I mean, going off tangent, that was the whole reason World Series cricket happened because he wanted because Australia at the time had a thing you had to have X about a local content. And for every Sullivans you produce, which are very, very expensive, you have to offset it with something cheap. So, of course, sport qualified as local content. Okay. And that's why he went after the, the sport rights, or for the rights for the cricket. So there you go. And there you go. All right, so my number one, I've gone with David Tennant. Not because he's the greatest actor in the world, but because this particular performance struck me as being worthy of mention. I could have gone with Broadchurch. Yeah. Uh, but he's in especially that first series he plays a really one note character I am sad I am glum I have a gravelly voice I'm glum I'm glum I'm glum <laughs> so instead I've gone with uh, the politician's husband oh. um, only because of the type of role that he plays which is the strutting um, politician who, who who snatches who reaches for the main chance who reaches for the prime minister and ship and falls and then faces the growing realisation that his wife, is, who's also a politician, is moving up in the political world and is a rival, a rival <laughs> to him or for, or for him to sort of overcome. And he goes from being the, the sort of, you know, the politician whose career has been sort of cut short by his, the fact that he's failed in his efforts to staying at home and looking after his, um, I think, his autistic son 
and being the family man, but sort of it's gnawing away at him that you know his wife is moving up, she's she's moving up in the in the cabinet and all that sort of thing, and it basically embitters him, and it embitters him to the point where he you know believes that his wife's having an affair, and in one pivotal scene, which I think exemplifies his character, he has his way with his wife in a um, in a manner which the Bible says you can't do. And I was watching that with my wife. And I said to her, did, did he do what I think he's just done to his wife? And my wife looked at me uh, and, and nodded and said nothing else. <laughs> um, so for that, I think... Because Tennant... I just think he plays a variety of characters and I thought this one um, is sufficiently different from his performance in Doctor Who that it's worthy of mention... The series itself is, is fine enough. It's three parts, and uh, if you can sort of you know move through all the political manoeuvring, etc., etc., I think the ending is is, is quite you know, interesting. But his performance of a man who reaches and fails and becomes embittered completely by it, and the way he treats his wife, is something that I, I thought is, is noteworthy enough to mention. Well, I haven't seen that, but that's going to be one that I'm going to check out. Okay, mm. very good. Very good. I was just going to say, were your Elizabeth R. and the Six Wives of Henry VIII on um, Henry VIII, uh, on uh, DVD? Yes, they are. They're all available. Yeah. And and I, I suspect that certainly Elizabeth R. used to be on YouTube. I'm not sure about Henry VIII. Yeah. But they're definitely on DVD. Okay. Very good. Well, if they're not network, I'll probably re-release them. Yes. Good old network. Good old network. Mark's number one? Oh, yes. Mark's number one. Sorry. He's not here and I don't know what the hell's going on. All right, Mark's number one. He goes with uh, Tom Baker, The Lives and Loves of oh, a She-Devil. Oh. <laughs> and I'll read what Mark has written out and then we can chat about it if we want to. And I quote, I do have very fond memories. Now, fond memories, okay? Of fond <laughs> memories. I do have very fond memories watching the series back. The thing is, that's even, even if you turn the vision off, it's just scary from the soundtrack. But go on, but go on. <laughs> to this day, I still can't get the image of Uncle Tom on the job, as it were, as well as the associated sound effects they applied to the scenes. Despite many years of counselling, I still can't get it out of my mind's eye. Now, <laughs> I've not seen the lives and loves of a she devil. If, if you're going for, if if the criteria is the most memorable performance, that is an absolute unquestionable number one. Oh dear, oh dear. Um, I don't actually think I want to say anything more about it other than invite people to go find it if they do, yes, and, go, and go. just just be ready for. Be go ready go for find it. it, and as I said, you can watch it with the vision turned off and the soundtrack alone. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose we're going to make a comment. Oh, sorry. I, re- I do recall this being quite a big deal in fandom when it happened. Yes. And, and it was... It was, I think, for Tom, very similar to what the, the, the infamous Katie Manning naked with the Dalek photos were. It was, it was that very genuine, if not desperate, attempt to just go so against cast mm. to not resurrect a career, because I mean, he never was out of work, but... To just really desperately try and throw that whole Doctor thing off mm. by doing something that was so unexpected of him, I don't think it really worked. Mm. So it actually, I think it probably stands alone in Tom's work. Of it, it, it just doesn't fit in with anything else I think he's done. 
It's a okay. very unusual performance. I might uh, sell it off to uh, I, I uh, YouTube. YouTube yes, I, I think it. it is. I think it is on YouTube. Now, before we go to our also rans or those who didn't quite make it, I'll just quickly. Read. And looking at the list, I think there are sadly are only two. I'll just uh, I'll just read out some because uh, we posted uh, a request for our followers or listeners to uh, send in their um follow followers yes yeah. followers followers they're loyal <laughs> listeners uh, so I've got Rob Irwin um, uh, Rob Irwin's the Doctor Who podcast thing he is yes hello Rob the Doctor Who show Doctor Who show uh, available uh, on an iTunes thing near you uh, it goes with uh, Davo at home with the brave weights and also a very peculiar practiced uh, practice watched both of them around the time of release in the past five years on dvd both of which were reasonably hard to find at least at the time a fellow named paul cook on twitter excuse me an extensive list here i'll just rattle through this hartnell uh, uh the dad in uh, or dad in this sporting life Troughton mm, yep. as uh, cole hollings and the box of delights pertwee as wurzel gummidge wurzel gummidge uh, tom baker is redbeard Rum in Black Adam Oh, too. yes, actually, yes. You have a woman's purse, my lord. <laughs> I'll wager that a dozen sailors have never sat tossing restlessly. <laughs> uh, I watched the last episode of Black Adder, the very last episode a couple of nights ago. Oh, suitably uh, mortal. Yeah. Well, if you want to film a, um, a death scene in a, basically a cupboard, that set was very small. Mm. Anyway, uh, Davison is Tristan Farnsworth in... Um, um, Farnan. Farnan. Let's say Farnan. This is Farnsworth here. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely Farnan. Okay. Colin Baker is Paul Maroney in The Brothers. Uh, McCoy as himself is in Tiswas. McGann in I uh, is yeah. the Iron Whittle and I. Actually, I could have gone with that too. Hurt as uh, Timothy Evans in Ten Rillington Place. Don't know that. Never one. heard that one. Eggleston, Nikki and Our Friends in the North. Uh, Tennant as D.I. Oh, Carlisle. Friends in the North. Well, that's another suitably depressing. Uh... Yeah, but that's, that's, that's Eggleston all over, isn't it? Mm. Uh, D.I. Carlisle in. Um, is it Broadchurch? Or... No, Blackpool. Blackpool, sorry. Uh, Matt Smith is uh, Jim Taylor in The Ruby and the Smoke. Oh, yeah. uh, Starring Billy Piper. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Capaldi is Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it. Yeah, so that was that. Yes, yeah, so that's our listeners there. Yeah, some um, good thoughts from them. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much for that. So that's our top five plus one list of uh, uh, outside Doctor Who performances by the lead actors. Dave, you've been keeping a tally. Um... What can you? Uh, what can we say? Well, we'll just let's start with the the, the numerics because that's easy. There are three actors who have scored three nods each. Uh, that's been Paul McGann, Christopher Eccleston, and David Tennant. And I have to say, none of those shocked me. I, I, I had McGann and Tennant has been two of the three that I expected to get mm. lots of hits. We did, and actually, with McGann, no one mentioned Withnall. No, in actually, in hindsight, uh, I would probably replace uh, Pertwee with McGann for Withnall. I remember going to see that with you, Richard, actually. You did. In a, in a flip it, and it was very, very funny. And a very it was. Yeah. Very, which, which would put McGann at four out of four. Mm. So, And that's, that's a, I think, a very fair reflection. Of his Interesting, ability. actually, for a bloke who's got, what, 60 minutes of screen time as the That's the thing about his time. Is not only is it 60 minutes of screen time, the first 15 minutes of that is him wandering around in a bed sheet. Mm. The last 15 minutes is him in the... Um, uh, in the in the in the clockwork orange machine go Grace that's not his fault look no it's not his fault it's not his finest performance no, so no. Let, 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 let's not beat around the bush it's not no. what any actor could have done with some of that script I don't know but yeah it's just interesting I mean, I mean and the fact that again you know we've, we've got him down for genuine dramas we've got him down for comedies we've got him down for sort of you wouldn't call Give Us a Break a sitcom, but it's certainly yeah, it's a, a, it's a... It's a comedy drama, I suppose. Yeah, it's yeah. It's the same fun as Minder, really. 
Yes. Com, com, ethnic com drama. Um, so that's quite interesting. Eccleston, I mean, look, he's he's a very strong performance. He's but, a powerhouse, isn't he? So. But interestingly, again, I think all three of our picks, unlike McGann, all three of our picks have been for the same type of role, which obviously he well, specialises in. I think in. that's really what he's known for, though. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. And, and, and Tennant, I mean, Tennant... Outside Tom Baker, possibly, is probably the most famous now actor to have played the role. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Well, I mean, certainly that's, you know, I mean, that, that's when the, the new series had its, its massive up spike in, in, in popularity. That, that solely has to be down to Tennant. And where David Tennant comes along. And, and really, I mean, he would be easily the, the most popular, well, certainly since Tom Baker. And I mean, Tom was easily the most popular of the first four. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, and, you know, I, I would suggest... That you know, the popularity probably hasn't been matched with since Tennant left. No, no, no. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are two of the 12 Doctors that have unfortunately not got any nominations. Well, there's a couple only got one. Do you want to look at them first? No? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do the nuns and then go to the ones. Um, look, it, it, it's Colin and McCoy. Mm. Now, I'll... I'll, I'll Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that gives us no love, but I think for Colin... It's been said in many conversations, Colin is first and foremost a theatre actor. Mm. And I, I think that even his more memorable TV performances have been ones where his theatre style uh, quite suits it. You know, such as Babe and the Butcher. Whenever I think of whenever I think of Collins, Colin as a theatre actor, I think of those two actors from um, the, that episode of Blackadder the Third. You know, with the sort of the the, the chest out, the, the, the serious actor. Yes, you know, oh, to be or not to be. Colin's very much. Colin is like that. So. I, I really could, couldn't struggle to point to a really good TV or film role. The, the Brothers, the little I've seen isn't bad. That was probably, if anything, the highlight of his career. Yeah, certainly on probably. TV. I mean, again, a couple of bits I've seen, he's certainly not bad. I mean, I've seen him in a few other things. And I mean, look, he certainly, I don't think, ever turns in a really woeful performance. But No, 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 um, not at all. Not but, at all. I mean, you're probably struggling. I mean, I was looking when I was looking through. He's struggling to come up with the probably the big defining role that he had. I mean, look, he was in a bit of stuff I've watched over the last little while. I mean, he's in an episode of the Indiana Jones Chronicles. Yes, he's um, in, um, as indeed is John Pertwee. But, yes, he's in an episode of Jonathan Creek. Yep. Um, we're, we're perfectly fine, but it's not a standard um, performance. In, uh, that, that that Private Eye episode, oh, Public Eye, I think public I sent eye, you. Yeah. Uh, that episode I sent you. Uh, and sorry, no, I don't have any more. <laughs> um, and Sylvester McCoy, I actually don't think I have seen him in anything other than um, He's in... Um, I, I have seen the, the emailer in um, who mentioned him in Tiswas. I have seen... That there's a couple of... There were a couple of Tiswas best of things um, tapes released. Okay. Um, there was a... There was a you remember there was an English bloke who used to come... He, only recently migrated, I think. It used to come to his summer a couple of meetings in the late 90s. So oh, yes, them. yes, yes. Um, and I have seen him, one of his early, uh, McCoy's early things, he was in uh, Vision On, if anyone remembers that. It was a Tony Hart series okay. from the 70s where it was actually initially designed, I think, for, um, for, for um, hearing-impaired kids, um, I think a series specifically for them. And so it's, it's very visual. Um, and it contains a lot of, you know, sort of mime-type performances mm-hmm. and a lot of visual stuff on screen. Um, McCoy is in some of those, um, playing various sort of various background characters and various bit parts. Um, and look, he's actually quite good in it. But oh, look, I, I, I don't doubt that in the right roles he's, he's perfectly good, but there isn't, a lot of, there isn't a lot of it out there. I mean, as I say, I don't think I've Bad seen... Brown any... against the Brown? <laughs> 
the Hobbit movies. Oh my goodness, no. Why would you bother watching the Hobbit movies? I mean, really. It's... it's I, I saw the first one. I must admit I didn't bother with the other two. Yeah. But the, the, the problem with McCoy's role in that is that everything that's wrong about those Hobbit movies is encapsulated in McCoy's The, the Jar Jar Binks of the Hobbit. Oh, it, it, it really, really is. It's just... It's a role that doesn't need to be there. Well, it's, it's not there. Uh, well, that's really right. Brown is a mention in the appendices of Lord yeah. of the Rings as yeah. in two to, sentences. To, 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 to take a perfectly decent 240-page book and make it into a completely tedious and awful nine-hour movie. Mm. And, and McCoy's role just encapsulates everything that's wrong with that. Jackson movies. should be ashamed of himself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to look at those who only got one mention again I think oh, look, look Hartnell I think again I, I think what I've seen of Hartnell he's very 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 good actor but there just isn't a lot of it out there and what there is isn't quite a standout it's almost role. it's probably also a lot of his to say it's another another complete era now it I, is I guess that's it probably really the other is. thing with Hartnell it's not stuff that's ever repeated um, it's mostly movies and unless you're an aficionado of late night television um, here in Australia, look, they, they never show any of anything he was in, mm. ever really. It's really, he is now somebody, sadly, who is, who's aficionados only, really. Yeah, and, and that, that's a shame. I, I, I would love to have been able to include Hartley in my list because I'm a huge fan of his Doctor, but I, I can't put my hand on my heart and say I've got a performance that I think would be out there. Um, I think the thing, uh, there is a very good movie, um, if you can find it, it's called The Gang T Incident. Oh yes, um, I've heard of that. I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, which I, I've seen. I caught one night. It was on TV. Um, it's a he plays. It's a ship that was um, captured by the Chinese. Um, in in the and look, I know he regarded. I think it's one of the best things he did, and he is really good in it. Okay, but um, that's one worth well worth checking out. But yes, anyway, um, Peter Capaldi only got one mention. But I think we all said if we had six or seven shots. He'll, he'll be in there and... Mm. Well, to be honest, he's that. not... I don't know that I've really watched a heap. I mean, I've watched in the thick of it, but I, I don't know too much else, actually. I've said, I mean, I, I, I know, and, and if Mark was here, we, we could probably do the, um, you know, the local hero jokes. Ah, but, well, Mark actually said... He said... What did he say? Uh, Peter Capaldi, local hero. I'm not sure if you guys know, but this is his first... Yes, um, well, we could do that again. But I, I'd be honest and say, I don't know that I've really watched a lot of other stuff that have I've, I've seen, been in. I've seen him in something where he plays Charles I in a... And I'm not sure, I think it's more of a Cromwell movie than wow. than a, a Charles I movie. I don't it's know what it's like called. Stephen Fry playing Charles I. And he's very, very good in that. And again, if I had Capaldi as my number six, I probably would have gone with that role. Um very good actor. He just the others are even. Better. I mean, has anyone watched The Musketeers? No. Yes. And is he? He's pretty good. Is he good in that? He's pretty good. It's you know he's um he plays a sort of anti-hero. No, yeah, well he's the doing Cardinal there. Right, yeah, Cardinal Richard sure, there, yeah. right? Yeah. And then of course he left and they killed the character off out of, <laughs> out of variance with history. But anyway, so. <laughs> um, also getting one one tick was Matt Smith, who, again, I. I I don't know if I'm surprised or not, because Matt Smith does a certain character very, very well. Mm. And that's not necessarily the character that gets the accolades for the big dramatic role. Like, you know, he's good in Christopher and his kind, he's great in Party Animals, he's good in Doctor Who, but... So is he more the quirky role? Yeah, I think think he is. Because I'll be honest, I don't think I've... Say I've seen very little with Capaldi, I don't think I've seen anything else he's been in. I wonder where Smith's, Smith's career will take him in the next 10 years. I, th- I think that Smith will do very, very well doing 
interesting and quirky roles. Supporting roles, do you think, more often than not? He's the sort of guy that you could see winning many, many Best Supporting Actor nominations and never getting a Best Leading Actor well, I'm assuming the Terminator series isn't going in the water. Yep. For now. For now. But even if Until I do the next reboot. Yeah, in which case he won't be on it, so, yeah. Well, 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 well he's, he's gone back and he's now playing um, the Duke of Edinburgh in that new oh, yes. uh, royal drama, so, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know if it's a free-to-air or a... I have a feeling that it's a... Um, I think it's a TV thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. But he's definitely playing the Duke of Edinburgh in something coming soon. Okay. So, which, again, I think shows that he's gone back to that sort of very good supporting role. And mm. nothing at all. I mean, that's not an indictment on his no, performance no. as well. He does those things very, very well. Yeah. He's just not someone that... You know, when you look at the people who we've had as our top five, they've been big, powerful performances, dramatic performances. That's not Smith's sweet suit. No. No. And are they non-canon doctors? Is it John Hurt by a John of the John show? Hurt by a length. Um, one that I think we do want to touch on is John Pertwee. Mm-hmm. Now, I actually didn't expect him to get any picks. He's got he's got two ticks, but they're both for Wurzel Gummidge from you and yeah. Mark. Uh, and that's a very very fine performance. And I'm interested that they got up there. Pertwee's another one who has many many I think brilliant performances, but not in that dramatic lead role. No. You know, when you look at you know. Hurt Night Claudius, Trout New Henry VIII, the stuff that Davison's done, the stuff that Eccleston's done, these big performances. Pertwee doesn't do that. No. That's not to say that he's not a brilliant actor at what he does. Okay. No, and, and again, you know, he's probably... He's a lot entertainment actor more than anything else, would you say? I th- I th- well, well uh, certainly. I, mean, I think so. Um, and, and arguably some of his best works on radio as well. Yes. It is, and I mean, let's face it, I mean, he himself, I mean, there's that oft-quoted story when he got the role of the Doctor Who's John Pertwee because he spent his entire life doing funny voices and, and you know. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I must admit, I, I was struggling to come up with something for Pertwee, and so I'm probably a fraction older, so I remember Wurzel Gummidge being on, but I can't say it's one I really watched, so... Because um, I think I was probably a bit old for it by the time we're showing out here. So actually, of that ilk of TV shows, I prefer Cat Weasel to. Um, oh, Weasel I love Cat Weasel. Yeah, but you know, Cat I mean, oh, Weasel is probably much easier to enjoy as an adult than mm. Weasel Gummy Keys. Yeah, oh, oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, to sum up, and then the scary thing is he's actually Jeffrey Barlow. I think is the only one out there, out there who's still um. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Who's still what? With us? <laughs> is he? Fuck! Mm. He must be in like a hundred. <laughs> Did I swear? Okay, we'll cut that out. Um, all right, so then... I'll, I'll just confirm that, actually. We're going to just take a brief interregnum. Yes. I'll, um... I'll just confirm that. There will be a short interregnum before radiation commences. Should he still alive? Mm-hmm. No, he must be dead. Yeah, there you go, he's still alive. He's 92. Oh, that's all right, then. Yeah, he's, he's 92. Still... No, he is. He's actually the only one out of Catweasel who's still alive, because the, the... I mean, Bud Tingwell... Right. passed away some years ago um, and Neil McCarthy has has died mm-hmm. um, and the kid who played um, I don't know that doesn't include the second series sorry but the second series wasn't as good as the first series so um, and the kid who played the, the red-headed kid in the first series he's uh, he's also passed away yeah, there you go. so I don't I don't know about the second series but yes Jeffrey Bowden is still alive he's 92 years old still with us well there you go alright then so that's our top five there's some strong performances in there, isn't there, Dave? It, I think it just proves that one of the reasons why Doctor has been so successful is 
the list of lead actors has been a very, very strong list. The show's been very fortunate in that regard, hasn't it? It has. And when, when you look at I mean, particularly the new series, you know, Eccleston, Tennant, Smith, Capaldi, mm. they're very, very strong actors. They're like the first four classic series doctors, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And just to wrap it up, uh, the observation has been made uh, well, twofold. We, we, we looked at, at uh, yeah, at Colin and Sylvester, and we noticed they were the two actors that didn't get uh, really no one picked. And, and they were also the two actors who really, well, I guess really didn't go through an audition process. They were picked. Um, for the role. They were hand-picked for the role by the producer. Does that maybe say something about, uh, maybe say something about J&T's choices? goes to show that possibly a rigorous, a more rigorous process would have thrown up a better choice. I, I, I think that's that's probably true. And Look, some will disagree, and I, I'm sure that you would welcome emails and tweets and comments Absolutely. of disagreement, but I, mean, it's, I, I think that they they are the weakest on that list. Particularly, I mean, again, you look, Hartnell, Troughton, Pertwee, Tom, Peter Davison, all amazingly good actors with very strong careers. Mm. Colin McCoy aren't in that category. In my opinion, and I think the evidence bears that out. No, I mean, look, there's always mitigating circumstances. I mean, look, Colin, I think that the, the thing is, had he been allowed to play it as he wanted to play it, and, of course, had he not had all the other shite going on around him, mm. as in being in the ridiculous coat, you know, Eric Saywood being part of the production team still, um, and whatever else was going on, um, I think would have had a much better run at the role. But... Yeah, no, I'm just curious, because if you think about it, if you look at the casting process behind them, I mean, if you look at the first five, they were all, none of them were the, were the producer's first choices um, for the role. I mean, they all looked at other roles, and I think in all cases it was offered to other actors before it was offered to any of the first five on that list. Um, and I think when you get into the later ones, I mean, McGann was one of the last actors they saw mm. uh, when they were casting that. Um and, and the others, I think, also, again, went through a, a fairly rigorous uh, well, audition you, you, process. Well, you just don't give the lead to a major franchise these times without a lot of boxes being Well, checked. you don't. And, I mean, look, if you believe um, Neil Gaiman, and, and it's recently come out, I think, elsewhere, that, that it was at the Matt Smith Doctor, I think, uh, was, was offered to a completely different actor. Yes, I believe um, and, so. And a, yes, a, a non-white actor. Let, let's let's, let's oh, be honest. Right. Yes, yes. Let, let's be honest. Um, it was offered to a non-white actor. Um, before it was offered to, to Matt Smith. Um, so, but if you notice that they are the two that was just, I want him. Mm. Mm. So, to, to the point with McCoy, where if you believe the story, he actually rigged a series of fake auditions so that yes. they, with, yes. with even worse actors, so that you would, sorry, um, with, <laughs> with, 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 with less suited actors. Yes, with yes. less suited actors, so that they would be forced to pick McCoy. Yes. So, as we wrap it up then, Chris Chibnall. Uh, and the BBC would be ticking lots of boxes, looking at lots of people, if they're going to be true to the show going on, to get the right man for the, the job. What, what, what has stood out for and me... And I say right man for the job. What has... Good point. What has stood out for me is every single one of the new series doctors, Eccleston, Tennant, Smith, Capaldi, when they've been announced, I know I certainly have been able to go, I know who that is, and I know why they've been cast. Never, have, and I hope that that continues. I think it would be very risky mm. to just go for a, who the hell is that in that role. And Tom's probably the one who goes against that to prove prove yeah. the point. Tom, and, think, and Tom's just a freak. Yes, he is, isn't he? I think on uh, your point, Richard. By that stage, by the mid eighties, the BBC couldn't give a stuff. About no, I, and I think that's so. Tr- J and T was given a free 
reign to do what he wanted. Nowadays, as you say, Doctor Who, even though it's on the slight decline, is a major franchise for the BBC. They're not going to pluck someone from complete obscurity who's been very entertaining at a wedding and put him in a role (laughs) for a series that generates so much cash. And and I think we're the better for that. Okay, excellent. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the podcast once again. It's an absolute privilege. I'm sure we'll have you on before the end of the year. It's a pleasure to have been here. Dave, thank you very much for hosting. No, that's great. Great to have you. Always fun and great. Thanks for having me back on again. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, Mark and I, well, Mark will be back on board uh, in another month's time, so we'll speak to you again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. Mm. Mm. Mm.